Across the globe, 2,800 dedicated soldiers and civilians at 23 locations in 11 time zones stand ready. This is SMDC. Welcome back to the High Ground, home of U.S. Army Space Missile Defense Command. I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Alan Meeks. We're glad you could join us. Uh, this will be our last monthly episode for Season 1 of the podcast. We'll discuss it more at the end of the show, but we'll be doing a significant revamp for Season 2 beginning in November. In the SMDC History Moment, for Sergeant Sagan, we'll school us on what the Ronald Reagan test site at Kowajaling has to do with the English rock band The Beatles, and I get to talk to an old friend of mine who recently took command of the 49th Missile Defense Battalion at Fort Greeley. Sergeant First Class Ronstadt's back on orders and has a piece about an Army space support team participating in a series of, of exercises in real-world operations in Hawaii. We'll also learn how SMDC is improving the capability of our Stinger Manpad soldiers in the field and a cool job segment with a soldier from the 100th Missile Defense Brigade. It's good stuff, so stick around. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. It's uh, mid-September 2021, and this is Episode 11 of The High Ground, U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command signature podcast. To kick things off, we're going to Colorado Springs, and Sergeant First Class Aaron Rongstad is going to be talking about Army Space Support Team 5. We'll learn about their experiences supporting participating commands for a number of Indo-PACOM exercises in Hawaii. Army Space Support Teams, ARSTs for short are the Army's only element designed to provide direct space support to Army formations and increase lethality across the intelligence, fires, mission command, and protection warfighting functions. They are experts in all space mission areas and provide a surge capability to integrate space and special technical operations into joint task forces. ARST-5 traveled to Hawaii in July to support U.S. Army Pacific for a number of reasons. Captain Justin Martirogian of ARST-5 explained their trip in a nutshell. We're here supporting a number of different exercises. Uh, we're, we're actually here to support Defender Pacific. Uh, we just completed supporting uh, Pacific Century. And uh, we'll be continuing with some steady state operations, just supporting normal day-to-day -day operations here at USERPAC and rolling into a couple other things as we go into Defender Pacific. An Army Space Support Team provides space support to operations for uh, various commanders at Echelon. So here we're supporting the theater army at USERPAC, uh, but we will support division commands, core commands, and again, here at the theater army, uh, we provide space-enabled support, right? So we liaise between different space agencies, we provide products that help give a, a shared understanding of the, the battlefield to include our domain, which is space, and we also are assisting in various planning efforts as we, we go into exercise and real-world operations. Sergeant Joel Olivia of ARST-5 was excited to be a part of this mission. It's been great being here in Hawaii because we've been training up for this exercise for a while now. We've completed our table certification twice before even coming out here. So actually get, being able to utilize all the software that we've been training on, putting it to work, and then seeing and getting feedback from what we do. It's, we've been receiving great feedback and been complimented on our work multiple time, so it's been really good. Specialist Mark Harris of ARST-5 felt the mission was an overall success. What's been great about being here in Hawaii and performing this mission is it's been very rewarding. Um, 
we've been able to put everything that we've practiced into effect and seen a, a good impact back at it. Uh, one of the more rewarding things that I've done is um, some of the products that we build and uh, seeing it being briefed to uh, high-ranking officers and people in the military um, is something that uh, I was not expecting um, to feel. Captain Marta Rogian touched on the importance of having boots on the ground in Hawaii to support the exercises. You know, it's easy to say, hey, couldn't you just do some of the, the stuff space support teams do, you know, virtually? Can we, can we just dial it in? And the reality is being here in Hawaii allows us to actually integrate with the commander's plan, right? So being able to understand thoroughly what the mission is, be able to start developing products, briefing these products, and, and start kind of building the team here, integrating across the staff, really helps us actually provide better support. So it seems like we're here an awfully long time, which we are. Uh, but it actually allows us to really nest in their plan and truly support Defender Pacific and USERPAC as we go forward. You know, being able to phone up to Indo-PACOM and work with the subordinate commands uh, really allows us to, to provide good, carefully made products for the team and make sure that we're actually nesting with their intent. I'm Sergeant First Class Aaron Ronstad, reporting from Fort Carson, Colorado. Glad to have you back, Sergeant Ronstad. Thanks for that. All right, and next up, we've got Ron's interview with SMDC team member Justin Novak. They'll be talking about transitioning a piece of equipment developed right here at SMDC and Redstone Arsenal that will hopefully be in the field for our air defense soldiers very soon. Hello, everyone. I'm Ronald Bailey from SMDC Public Affairs. Today, I'm talking with Justin Novak on the high ground about an innovative solution to enhance the capability of our short-range air defense systems and soldiers. And it was all essentially born out of Justin's mind right here at Redstone Arsenal. Justin, if you could briefly introduce yourself to the audience before we dig a little bit deeper into this thing called ETAC. Ron, thanks for having me on the show. I'm a program manager with the Space Missile Defense Technical Center, but an engineer by trade. Um, I have a, a fairly extensive background in software and then test and evaluation. So ETAC, kind of your baby, if you will. Where did that idea come from and how did that come about? I came onto the ETAC program. It was um, a concept that I came up with um, several years ago, and I've refined this concept over the years and was able to actually take it into a, a working prototype and able to go out and have soldiers use the, use the system and determine that they really liked it and then have that out in the field for them. Okay, so Justin, what is the textbook answer to what ETAC actually is? So ETAC, or the Enhanced Target Acquisition Kit, provides day and night and degraded visual environment target acquisition and tracking for Man Portable Air Defense System, or MANPADS. In this particular case, ETAC's focused on the Stinger weapon system. Just, Justin, if I could interrupt real quick, for those who are not familiar with what a Stinger air defense uh, man portable weapon system is, uh, I think it's a sh like a shoulder-fired rocket, but it's a shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missile. Anyway, uh, you mentioned about what it is, but can you tell us a little bit more about what it does, how it enhances the soldier's capability? ETAC is designed to leverage the combat capability a soldier brings into combat with them to provide airspace situational awareness, early warning, and rapid sensor-assisted acquisition and tracking capability for dismounted soldiers over tactical radio networks. So those soldiers that are on the ground mm -hmm. um, alone and unafraid and 
and don't have the benefit of having vehicles or heavy infrastructure with them. The kit was developed in two increments, a rail site mount for the weapon and a sensor-based queuing system. In tandem, the kit cues the soldier to the vicinity of the target using the sensor and then enables positive target identification via the night optic. Okay, so just to clarify, so the kit consists of two pieces. The The night vision optic doesn't actually come with the kit. It isn't a custom ETAC night vision device. That's something that the soldier actually provides to the kit itself, right? Right, Ron. So to keep the weight down and also, more, most importantly, the training, which soldiers go through so much training already and, and have a heavy burden w with that and having continuous, continual refresh training, we wanted to make it as simple as possible. So this would take sight off of their existing individual weapon, like an M4, M16, and then utilize that for a different purpose so that they can leverage those same capabilities that they would use on their individual weapon for this air defense mission. So Justin, in a couple of the photographs I've seen about the ETAC, it shows something that kind of looks like a heads up display that, that the soldier will see through their night vision device. Um, is this something kind of like a, a virtual reality for them where it's getting information back from a battle command center for, a, for an air picture? Yes, it's, it's actually augmented reality. Uh, so the soldier is able to see everything he would normally see through regular glasses. And then on that, on that glass is painted a, a target identifier to cue the soldier to that target. Okay, so you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, one of the advantages of the ETAC system is that it relieves the burden of additional training because the soldiers using the optical device they're already familiar with or already trained on. The other thing that sticks out in my mind, having been a manpad soldier, having been an infantryman, is how much extra weight are you going to throw on me with this ETAC equipment? And more importantly, where am I going to be able to find batteries for this system? Please tell me it's not some proprietary battery that's weird and not compatible with anything else. And I can only use ETAC batteries in this thing. I totally understand. I've talked with many soldiers about the, the weight concerns specifically. They don't want to carry a technology and electronics and batteries. They would much rather carry ammunition and food. It uses common power sources, batteries that you would get at the local store, and is very lightweight, measured in ounces. Okay, so let me throw this at you, Justin. I have a little bit of experience uh, testing equipment and... One of the things that came up from time to time was if this piece of technology fails, am I still going to be able to use my weapon system? Is it something I can quickly take off or just leave there and kind of override it so I can still use the weapon? ETAC is field mountable and dismountable and does not modify the legacy capabilities of the system. In an emergency or malfunction situation, the weapon would still work exactly as it did before. So no modifications, no bringing it back to the U.S. To, to have it retrofitted for this particular enhancement. This is a mission kit design that the soldiers bring it with them when they need that capability. They mount the system and use it. And then when they don't need the system, they can put it back on their individual weapon and march on. And no super special tool that only the battalion armorer has, right? Exactly. No tools required. Um, actually, no moving parts. So, Justin, we've talked about this from the perspective of the tactical user, the end user, the, the shooter themselves. 
But really what you're doing with the ETAC system is you're making that individual stinger team, that two-soldier team, and you're integrating them into a much larger picture, sort of that any sensor best shooter concept. Is that what the Center of Excellence is trying to get after with this, as well as enhancing the tactical capability? In the Center of Excellence, one of the things we work to develop is interoperability technologies, uh, specifically for tactical operations centers how one computer talks to another and make sure that everything works across the board and everyone can communicate together. So the center of excellence is, is well suited and positioned to integrate those different systems together. In this case, it's an air defense system that has the sensor information available with the existing equipment that the soldier carries on him right now that's able to display that air defense sensor queuing and cue the soldier to where the target is. To learn more about ETAC or SMDC's other exciting people, programs, missions, and units, check out our social media or our website. That was actually a cut-down version of the entire interview. We'll be publishing the full-length piece as a special edition shortly if you'd like a little more background on ETAC development here at SMDC. All right, next up, we've got Ron talking with Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Stutz, who recently took command of the 49th Missile Defense Battalion at Fort Greeley, Alaska. Hello, everyone. I'm Ronald Bailey. Today on the high ground, I have the good fortune to speak with a friend of mine from my days as a missile defense officer, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Stutz, who recently took command of the 49th Missile Defense Battalion. We'll get to know a little bit about what makes him tick and the team of professionals he leads there at Fort Greeley, Alaska. Before today's call, I read up on his vision, which states, we are the forward edge of Homeland Defense. We are highly trained, tactically proficient servant leaders who, borrowing from the National Guard motto, are always ready, always there to conduct critical site security and defend the Homeland against ballistic missile attack. His personal philosophy is encapsulated in the acronym FORWARD, indicating he emphasizes family, origins, the history of the unit, readiness, winning, Accountability, resilience, and discipline. Those are the attributes that really make him tick. Lieutenant Colonel Stutz, Chris, great to have you on the show. Uh, Mr. Bailey, thank you so much for inviting me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this great battalion we have up here. Okay, first things first, let's dispense with that Mr. Bailey stuff. Kind of wears me out. Beetle's fine. Anyway, let's talk about uh, where you came from. How did you grow up in the Army? Give us a little background on yourself. Well, Beetle, I actually joined at uh, 1990, uh, the day I turned 17 years old. I joined uh, Bravo Company 37th Infantry in the Reserves in Colorado. Fast forwarding eight years of being a uh, reservist in the infantry, uh, I got out, and literally a year later, I came back into the National Guard, go to OCS, and I was a 13th Fox uh, or a Ford Observer for the Field Artillery. I commissioned into the field artillery in uh, 2001, and I was at 2nd Battalion, 157th Field Artillery, and uh, I switched over from field artillery to air defense and missile defense in 2004 when I became part of the GMD mission. I served with GMD uh, up to 2009, serving as a current operations officer, a brigade liaison element officer, an LNO, and a deputy director on crew, at which point I went back to 3157 field artillery to serve as a battery commander for an MLRS bit battery. After that, 2011, I came back to GMD. I served as a deputy director, an ORE team chief, and an exercise director 
uh, to about 2014, which then I became the secretary to the general staff uh, in the Colorado National Guard. I served as brigade training officer for the uh, 89th Troop Command in Colorado, Battalion XO for the 117th Space Battalion, and then I served as an Army Space Support Team leader in Afghanistan uh, in 2018 and 19. Came back in 2019 to become a, a director on crew at the Missile Defense Element at 100th Brigade. And then I was, uh, had the opportunity to come up here to the 49th in Alaska and assume command as the battalion commander. Okay, that's quite a resume. Let's focus in a little bit on your time with the 100th Brigade and how that uh, helped you become more familiar with the operations there at Fort Greeley. Okay. Well, you know, the first time I actually came up to Fort Greeley was as an exercise participant back in 2005. Uh, I was the first lieutenant at the time. It was cold. It was so cold when we came up here. Uh, that was my first experience. Fast forward to 2011, and I was the exercise director for the 100th for the battalion Exeval that year. Um, that was the first time I actually got to come to uh, Fort Greeley when it was kind of nice out, and that was in May, uh, and got to uh, experience the land of the midnight sun, if you will, uh, for the first time. After 2011, I became the uh, I got into the ORE team, and I spent many months, mostly in the winter time, up here in Alaska conducting uh, evaluations on the FDC crews, as well as conducting uh, the regular exercises. So. All in all, I've been up here between half a dozen and a dozen times over the course of my time with the 100th. So once you took command, I imagine not wanting to be like the bull in the china shop where you wanted to change everything overnight, imagine you use those first 30 or 60 days to sort of analyze the unit a little bit. So tell us a little bit about those first 30 or so days and what your focus was. The soldiers of the 49th already understood mission accomplishment, and they do a great job of it. Uh, so it allowed me to just really come in here and start to get to know the, the quiet professionals that we have here at the 49th. For my command, what I really wanted to focus on is how do I, you know, really put people first and winning matters. I wanted to focus on that. And how do I make uh, make our soldiers' lives better so they can be even more efficient at accomplish, accomplishing the mission? Chris, after that first 30 or so days, was there something you thought you knew or understood learned it was, in fact, very different from what you thought you knew? You know, Beetle, when I first come up, uh, came up here, I had a great understanding of the missile defense mission. But when I came up here, just to understand the dedication the military police have on this missile defense complex and the mission that they have to do to protect the entire system, I did understand how complex or how important that was until I hit the ground and the soldiers really were able to show me what it is they really do up here. Along that same line, when you first got there, was there something that you thought was going to challenge you or tax you, but actually turned out not to be a challenge at all? That is a good question. Thank you. I try my best. <laughs> so, Beetle, I have this board in my office and I always constantly keep my top priorities on that board. The top three right now are resilience, the command climate, and talent management. And the only thing that's changed on that board is the talent management coming up from number four to number three when I took our battalion exeval off there because the soldiers just hit it out of the park. Uh, they did an amazing job. Okay, let's uh, be a little reflective here. Looking back, what sort of guidance did you get from 
peers, mentors uh, that have made you successful throughout your career that you'd like to share with us? Well, you know, Beetle, I would like to, uh, to look at, if we go all the way back to the early years in the last century, my squad leader, my platoon sergeant, they were really instrumental in, uh, in forming the Army values in me early. And I was very thankful for that. You know, I think one of the questions that you sent to me was when I first joined, you know, how far did I think I would go or where did I think I would be, you know, in the Army when I retired? And I always saw myself in the early years as I, I'm going to stay in until I'm 60 years old and I'm going to be a sergeant major. That is my goal. That was my goal back then. And I wanted to emulate senior NCOs that I saw around me, especially in the infantry. Fast forward to OCS, and I met several field artillerymen that embodied what I, what I felt an officer should be. And it had a lot to do with self-sacrifice and servant leadership. And I'm a big believer in servant leadership. It's not, you know, what the people around me can do for me, but it's how, how do I elevate the people around me? How can I help them become uh, more than themselves? How do I build that synergy so I can help make others great? Who do you lean on now? I'm sure you get mentorship and guidance from the commanding general, the 100th Brigade commander, the troop command commander there in Alaska, who is a former 49th uh, battalion commander himself. But who do you look to now as far as your peers or folks from the past who maybe aren't generals or colonels? You bring up a good point. People like you and, you know, Beetle, you and I have known each other for a few years. Uh, and I have bounced things off you over the past few years as I've grown in, uh, in my job. Uh, you and I were captains together. I think you remember that. But I also have, you know, friends and peers that I, I call and I discuss what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, people I met on deployment, and a few others that I met in a pre-command course. I call them regularly, and we just discuss, you know, how our commands are going and what we're doing, and we bounce ideas off of each other and find out, you know, what they think about them and how, you know, certain ideas worked for them. And it's, it's been a great support system. I think that the, the best person I have for my support network is, uh, is actually my Sergeant Major. Uh, Sergeant Major Jeremy Christensen is an amazing Sergeant Major, and he's a great partner for this command team. You've mentioned the missile crews and the Alpha Company military police there. What about the rest of your staff there at the battalion headquarters? I don't know where to start. I have a great staff. I do have a, the staff here is very young. I have a lot of lieutenants, but they're eager and they're smart. They're very smart, way smarter than you and I were when we were, we were uh, lieutenants. And uh, they're hungry, and they're doing a great job. I mean, truly, Beetle, I've been very lucky. Okay, Chris, we're going to try something new today, only because it's you, something fun. Getting to know the lighter side of Lieutenant Colonel Stutz a little bit. We're going to do a rapid-fire, quick response segment. I'll put 60 seconds on the clock, and since this isn't a video, I've got an appropriate sound effect for you to answer six questions. That's 10 seconds each. Don't overthink it, okay? Here we go in three, two, one. <laughs> what are your two biggest pet peeves? Uh, timeliness and self-serving. Okay, being on time and being self-serving. Favorite military course you've ever taken? Can I have two? Yeah, sure. Jungle Operations Training Course and... Space Operations Qualification Course. Your favorite item from an MRE. Okay, they don't make it anymore, but it's a freeze-dried fruit. Oh, I love that. It had a weird texture, though, like uh, styrofoam. Now, what was the worst thing they ever put in an MRE? Oh, I hated the chicken a la king or the tuna casserole. Those were my two. Oh, got it. Did not like those. Yeah, chicken a la king. Blah, right? <laughs> 
I would never touch this stuff. I would go hungry first. Okay, I think we've already talked this one, but finish this sentence. When I joined the Army, I thought I would finish my career as a... Sergeant Major. Right. And when you want to get away and not think about anything work-related or stressful, you like to... Ride on the motorcycle. Ride on the ATV. Go hunting. Go for long walks with my wife. Work on the house. Okay, nailed it. Now, we don't have any prizes for you, but, you know, getting to talk to me is a prize for anyone, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, last words to you, Lieutenant Colonel Stutz. Thanks so much for your time. You know, I want everybody to understand and feel comfortable and safe knowing that our soldiers up here at the 49th always stand ready on mission, protecting the United States 24-7, 365 days a year. We will not fail. We will not falter will be on point every single day. Good times catching up with your friend, Colonel Stutz. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that phone call did last a lot longer than that piece. But of course, we've edited that for time here today. Next up, First Sergeant Sagan. This is an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. This episode, we will go deep, like underwater deep, and talk about an Army submarine and its importance at Kwajalein Atoll. One month after the Beatles, they're a band, declared we all live in a yellow submarine, the Army's Nike X Project office purchased their own yellow submarine in September of 1966 for the Kwajalein Missile Range. You may be thinking, why does the Army need a submarine? And I can imagine that acquisition meeting. The Navy has one. Why can't we? But the reason for having a sub starts in the air. After testing, the nose cones of these test missiles need to be recovered. Why? It allows engineers to assess the impact of re-entry upon the physical structure and internal equipment. Recovery efforts also ensure that the electronics and hardware were not lost to the well-equipped Soviet, air quotes here, fishing trawlers, which often appeared to witness the tests. So where do you get a sub? Conveniently, there was already a two-person Perry submarine in use on the island as part of a lease, designated PC-3A1 U.S. Army Missile Recovery Submarine. Well, since it was there and working well, it was selected to support recovery efforts and was purchased by the Army. The battery-powered sub could travel at a speed of five knots and dive to 300 feet, making all areas of lagoon accessible, while the bright color made it visible to surface vessels. I mean, it was yellow. In all, PC-3A1, the little sub that could, made more than 470 operational dives before being replaced by a newer sub in the 1970s. That first yellow submarine itself is on display at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, which is a museum in Huntsville, so stop by and check it out. This has been an SMDC History Moment. I'm First Sergeant Steve Sagan. Thanks for listening. All right, so finally it's time for the highlight of our show, the cool job segment. Last week, Ron and I caught up with a young officer at the 100th Missile Defense Brigade with a very cool job. And part of that is not only his primary job, but all the additional duties and responsibilities beyond that. Hello, everyone. I'm Ronald Bailey, Public Affairs, U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command, with another cool job segment for the High Ground Podcast. Today, we're interviewing First Lieutenant Jeremy Getz of the 100th Missile Defense Brigade to learn about his cool job. Jeremy, could you introduce yourself for us, please? 
Well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I'm Lieutenant uh, Jeremy Getz. I'm a Colorado National Guard soldier, uh, 14 Alpha, which is a air defense artillery officer with uh, Tango 3 additional skill identifier, GMD crew member, uh, currently serving as the 100th Missile Defense Brigade training and exercises OIC. Okay, so you're the Trex OIC, but I know at the 100th Brigade, most soldiers there have multiple additional duties beyond their primary. What's it for you? Uh, Moonlight is a couple different things. Uh, I'm the MOBE LNO for Quest for Forces and Enduring Request for Forces through the National Guard to supplement the military police up at Fort Greeley, Alaska, uh, sending MPs from throughout the United States, supplying them with uh, MPs that go up there. And I'm, I'm an LNO for ensuring that they get up there on time, that they're trained adequately, and uh, basically everything involved in that from the brigade, brigade perspective. Also, I, uh, I work with our other subordinate battalion, the 117th Space Battalion, as a, as a MOB OIC for them. Uh, they deploy five-man ARCH teams to CENTCOM semi-regularly. So I, I coordinate between them and the state and them and Space and Missile Defense Command to ensure the success of those deployments. Okay, so you help mobilize soldiers and units for deployments there at the 100th. What else? I also serve as a Missile Defense Operations Evaluator for our GMB crews and uh, also do a little bit of FUOPS work, uh, future operations, uh, with operations and training guidance from the brigade perspective. Okay, so as a lieutenant, I assume you don't have a lot of prior assignments before the 100th, but what were they? Yeah, so I uh, commissioned from Federal OCS at Fort Benning as a quartermaster, and then spent some time in a brigade support battalion, which is a, a logistics battalion. Um, as a, just a traditional National Guard soldier, uh, weekends, annual trainings in the summer. As I was going through my initial training entering the Army, I realized there was something I wanted to do full-time. So when I came into the National Guard, I was kind of hunting those those rare full-time jobs. So the first one I got was as a, a budget analyst for essentially what amounts to a, a National Guard hazmat team. Um, so I was, I was doing budget and some logistics stuff there, and then uh, – an opening came uh, for the 100th, and I applied for it. Okay, the 100th only has one logistics officer position that I remember, and that's typically a major, and you were a lieutenant. So what was the actual vacancy, and kind of explain that process for us. Yeah, so the opening was for um, a current operations officer on a missile defense crew. So there was an opening between uh, what they call the tri-state, which is California, Colorado, and Alaska, which are where uh, the 100th Missile Defense Brigade has our different uh, subordinate units and the main brigade. So it was open to those three states uh, for all Colorado um, junior officers, first lieutenant, second lieutenant. So I boarded uh, against about 13 people to get the position that I was eventually hired into. Okay, so you were hired on as a missile crew officer. What was that process like uh, getting out to crew and and spending some time out there before you went to staff? So I spent uh, the first couple months kind of in a holding pattern in the S3 section uh, the operations section of the brigade, um, just doing normal lieutenant lieutenant business. Uh, and then I went to um, my GND qualification course, which is an eight-week course that gets you that Tango 3 additional skill identifier and uh, qualifies you to go out and be a crew member. So I, I spent some time at that course, and then immediately after that went and started training as a current operations officer on a crew and then I spent two years there. The first year of being a current operations officer on a crew was relatively relatively uneventful. And then the second year that I spent out on a crew was during COVID. So we uh, had a little bit of – we had some sequestration. We had some uh, uh, enhanced health procedures that we had to go through 
testing, sequestration in hotels, spending time away from the family to ensure mission success uh, in that clean operational environment. After your time on crew, you moved to staff as the training and exercise officer in charge. Can you tell us a little bit about those duties? Sure. So for um, everything that's non-training and exercises OIC, the Trex OICs, which is my main position, I'm mostly a coordinating force. Uh, so I'm keeping the brigade involved, making sure that uh, that my leadership has the answers to, to diff- difficult questions or problems that may arise before they even know that there's a problem. So most of that's a coordinating function, but my main position as the training and exercises OIC is to plan and prepare for different exercises at different echelons. So we conduct exercises uh, and external evaluations on our subordinate units, uh, like the 117th Space Battalion we talked about, as well as the 49th Missile Defense Battalion. Uh, We conduct external evaluations on them, and I also plan for uh, external evaluations to be conducted for us by Space and Missile Defense Command. And those exercises and evaluations aren't just up and down the Army chain of command. You're also working a lot with the Navy and other ballistic missile defense partners as well, right? So not only do we um, do external uh, lower echelon, upper echelon exercises and training, but we also do some external exercises with the Navy. We work with the Pacific and Atlantic Fleet uh, to conduct uh, BEMDEX exercises, the ballistic uh, missile defense exercises, monthly, where we interact with them and, and their different sensors, radars, and ships throughout the world to ensure the, the defense of the United States. Okay, we talked about some of the things you do, but... How do you do those? Is there such a thing as a normal day or a normal week for you as a training and exercise OIC? A normal week is uh, me planning for these benchmark times throughout the year. So maybe every, roughly every two months, we have uh, a major evaluation or a major exercise that we're involved in. And uh, it takes coordination to ensure the success of that mission. So in-progress reviews, commander's briefs, getting guidance, executing that guidance. And then the fun time is when you're actually in the exercise or in the evaluation, uh, you really get to get to see everybody working and testing skills and all that. 100th Brigade, very different kind of a unit, whether it's an active component unit or a National Guard unit. I know is different than any unit I'd been into in my 20 years prior to being assigned there. Explain to us a little bit about what it's like to be in the 100th. Absolutely. There's definitely some some significant differences here at the 100th than there are from other units in the National Guard and then, of course, other units in the Army. The differences uh, between the 100th and the National Guard is that it's a full-time active guard reserve, a full-time AGR unit, and there's very few units like that in, in the National Guard in general where all your, full, all your staff are full-timers instead of having, you know, a small portion of your staff be AGRs and then the rest of them just normal weekend drilling soldiers. So that's different from anything I'd experienced before in, in the National Guard. And then just the differences between us and the normal Army. You know, we're in Colorado Springs, which is the home of the 4th Infantry Division in Fort Carson. And people, um, if you get caught in your uniform out in town, if you're walking around town uh, in your uniform and they see the U.S. Army, the initial assumption usually is that you're an infantryman or somehow related to the infantry and uh, that space is mostly an Air Force job. So it's a little bit of a niche that we're in here, um, but it's definitely a unique and interesting one. Now, there specifically at the headquarters element in Colorado Springs for the 100th Brigade, 
they've got another unique feature or the way they're composed that's different from even those full-time National Guard units you mentioned earlier. Explain to us what that is. So even uh, even in the National Guard as having a full-time unit, we are also a multi-component, um, a multi-component unit where we have the majority of us are National Guard soldiers and then there's a handful between five and ten at a given time that are actually active duty um, air defense artillery officers and MP officers um, and NCOs that are that fill our ranks and give us a de- definitely a unique a unique vibe and a unique um, a way about us where we can pull from different resources um, maybe there's a there's an answer to a question that an active duty soldier would have that a national guard soldier wouldn't and uh, it's just a way for us to to be able to solve more problems really I'd like to drill down on that just a little bit more. The active component soldiers, the regular army soldiers that are assigned to the 100th Brigade, where do they come from? And talk talk to us a little bit more about what dynamic they bring into making this a better and a more unique unit. Yeah, so we get we get active component soldiers from all different um, all different portions of the 14 Alpha, which is or the 14 Series branch, which is the Air Defense Artillery. We get some soldiers from Patriot Battalions or Patriot Batteries. We get some from from THAAD, which is Terminal High Altitude Air Defense. We get some from JTAGs, which is essentially missile warning, satellite missile warning units um, over in Korea and in the Middle East. So we, we get a lot of fresh ideas and fresh blood from active duty that as a normal National Guard unit, there's there's a pretty significant dwell time typically, and you get a lot of people who've been in the job for a while. They have a lot of experience, but they also don't have new ideas coming in. So those active component soldiers really bring in bring in fresh ideas and, and fresh ways to think about things. I assume that explaining your job as the training and exercise OIC is something that most people would understand, military or otherwise. But when it comes to being on missile crew, if you're out there doing some kind of part-time work, filling in for somebody else, how do you explain that to people who don't know what GMD is? You know, I, I have a lot of friends that aren't in the military here, and, and when they ask me what I do, you kind of have to couch it a certain way so that they understand what actually happens. Because you say missile defense soldier, and they just hear the word missile. And it's like, oh, wow, this guy's on missiles. Well, not, not quite. So you have to explain, the, hey, this is hitting a bullet with a bullet scenario. And, you know, if I'm on crew for, for a while, and, oh, you're working nights? Well, what's that like? It's like well, it's, it's shift work, you know. We, there's always someone out there waiting and watching. And, and that's what we do. And um, what that means sometimes is you're sitting there and you've completed your training for your shift and you're just waiting for something to happen. And uh, and sometimes it's extremely busy, and it really the the highs and lows of the position are something that are difficult to describe to someone who's not familiar with uh, being on a missile defense crew. But it can go from high paced phones ringing off the hook at all times to you know you're just you're waiting for the next for the next maintenance to occur, or you're waiting for you know something to burn hot, and you see it on your screen. So it's difficult to explain to people who haven't experienced it, but it's definitely different from a lot of different units in the Army in that sense. And explaining to people what actually goes on out there can be even more difficult because most of what you do every day, day in, day out, is classified, at least on the missile crew, right? That's absolutely the reality. I mean, what you're doing on crew, the majority of it is classified. The broad strokes of your job are not, but that's not what's interesting. 
the interesting stuff is classified. So if I'm trying to, well, my wife goes, hey, how was your day at work? I'm like, oh, it was super crazy today. She goes, oh, you know, what happened? I'm like, well, it was super crazy today. That's really all I can share. <laughs> it's it's definitely a unique experience. Okay, LT, I thank you so much for your time this afternoon. We're running a little bit long, so we got to wrap this up here real quick. Switching back, putting your hat on as a training and exercise OIC. Title of the segment, what makes your job cool? Sure. I mean, what motivates me to get up in the morning and, and, and go to work and do my job well is, is really the execution piece of everything that I plan. It's, it's maybe only 5 or 10% of the time that I actually spend at work executing the plan, but it's when, you know, it's when you, you get all the action. It's when you get all the smiles and the nods and the high fives and the handshakes, and it's when you see soldiers learning, and it's when you see, you know, lessons being taught. It's when you see things that you plan to go right. It's when you see um, soldiers doing their job and exceeding expectations and, and meeting the guidelines that the commander has set. And, and that's really the reward that you get for planning all these trainings and all these exercises is, is when you're actually on ground executing them. And those days are the rewarding ones, and, and that's, that's what we're always working towards. We're working towards executing the commander's guidance, doing it safely, doing it efficiently, and really exceeding the standards there. All right, Beetle, that's it for episode 11 and season one of the High Ground Podcast. Thanks to everyone who contributed to or worked on the podcast this year, taking us from research and beta testing to the high quality products we have now. And a special thanks to you, our listeners. We hope the podcast has provided you with interesting and inspirational stories about our global missions, units, and most importantly, our people. Alan, let's take them through some of the changes we've got coming up for the podcast in season two. Based on your feedback, the monthly podcast will now be more news, information, and upcoming events oriented. And we're going to take the cool jobs portion of the podcast and publish those as standalone special editions. This will mean the monthly podcast episodes will now be more like 20 minutes in length. And the look of the podcast will change too. Graphics Wizard Alan here has developed a new background graphics animation for the podcast, and I mean it's good. Thanks, Ron. And very shortly, we'll be starting two spinoff products from the podcast. First is a new micro-podcast series called High Ground Hits. Designed specifically for people who don't have time to listen to our longer podcast, hits will all be less than two minutes, and we'll also have photos and graphics shown while playing. Yeah, and I think most of them will actually be closer to one minute. They'll only be available through our Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages, so be sure to keep an eye out for those on weeks opposite our monthly or special edition podcasts. And due to their popularity, First Sergeant Sagan's History Moments will also receive their own special graphics treatment by Staff Sergeant DePrisco and be run as standalone mini-podcasts. Again, for those who maybe don't have time or interest in listening to our longer episodes. In all, Season 2 promises more and better ways to get that content you can't get anywhere else, right here on the high ground. From the High Ground Studio, Redstone Arsenal, I'm Ronald Bailey. And I'm Alan Meeks. Thanks for listening. This is SMDC. SMDC.